The opinions expressed on this program are solely those of its hosts, guests, or callers, and do not necessarily represent the opinions of WTBR-FM, its management, other producers, or sponsors. Welcome to Living Well into the Future. I'm your host, Julie B. Adler. This series brings men and women ranging in age from their teens through their 90s to discuss food, housing, climate, and health. Our guests are problem solvers, solution makers. Learn what their contributions and experiences were and are, their challenges and their successes. Our goal is to spark your discussions among and between generations to inspire action toward a healthy and secure future for all. If you missed the first two episodes of the series on housing, or any of our four-part series on food, or just want to listen to certain episodes again, you can find them on WTBR-FM, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or any place you stream your podcasts. You can even ask your smart device to play Living Well Into the Future podcasts. We're trying to prepare people and buildings for extreme weather. So in the Climate Ready program, it's still a a green belt home and you're still reducing emissions, but that's not enough. So we're trying to design a building where if you lose power or water, or if you have some extreme weather event, we don't want the side of the house melting off because it's so hot that has been happening in other places. So we're starting to redo our criteria where we look at heat preparedness extreme heat preparedness. And we're thinking about things in a different way. And I think that's super important because a lot of times when we talk about climate change, people forget that people live here and it's coming and we have to get ready for it. Not just prevent it, not just stop what we're doing, but we also have to prepare people to live through it. I look at it both those two ways. It's emissions reduction. So mitigating our contribution to climate change and preparedness, and that is getting ready for what's already on our doorstep. That's Build San Antonio Green Executive Director Anita Ledbetter. We'll be speaking with Anita throughout this program. We'll also speak with Stephen Colley, architect. He's president of the Earth and Construction Initiative. And our third guest is Emily Jones, Senior Program Officer for LISC Boston's Green Homes, Green Jobs Initiative. Anita is now in her 40s and Stephen is in his 60s and Emily is 35. In this episode, we're going to turn to green building efforts on a citywide and statewide scale. While each community across this huge land may have different weather and climate issues to be considered in their housing, and local and state programs differ, the issues facing our housing choices require many similar considerations. We will sample two programs, one in San Antonio, Texas, and the other statewide in Massachusetts. One that mostly addresses single-family homes through builders and developers, and the other that primarily focuses on multifamily affordable housing. Although they differ in scope and scale, the underlying considerations and solutions will promote discussion as to what we need to do across generations to live well into the future wherever you reside. 
In the early 1980s, I represented a corporation that had placed solar panels on the roof of some of its buildings. They did so with incentives provided during the Carter presidency to encourage alternatives to oil and gas in the face of the experience of the Arab oil embargo of the early 1970s. By the 80s, under President Reagan, federal policies turned back to oil, gas, and nuclear energy. The solar panels were left to disrepair or removal. When Bill Sinken, who we'll hear about in the course of this program, started Solar San Antonio in 2002, the thought of broad use of solar energy was for many a distant memory or science fiction. When I met Mr. Sinken, dressed in his signature sports coat and bow tie, he was in his mid-90s. He had founded Solar San Antonio and the Metropolitan Partnership for Energy when in his mid-80s. He died in 2014 at 100 years of age. As you will hear, his work continues into the next generation. Here's Stephen Culley's perspective on the formation of Build San Antonio Green. Right after 2000, I was starting to practice environmentally appropriate architecture before then, but there's a gentleman here in San Antonio Bill Sinken, who was very well known in business circles in town, and uh, he wanted to launch a nonprofit called Solar San Antonio that promoted solar power and solar installations on uh, residences and uh, commercial buildings. And so he asked me to help him out with that nonprofit. And I said, well, look, this is like icing on the cake. We need to fix the cake first. And so he listened to that, and about a year or two later, he said, okay, it's time to spin off and do what eventually became to be called Build San Antonio Green, which was the San Antonio version of the Green Building Program. And I patterned it after green building programs that were already established. We weren't the first horse out of the gate. We launched Build San Antonio Green through the Metropolitan Partnership for Energy around 2002, 2003, somewhere like that. And it kind of grew from there. What was Metropolitan Partnership for Energy? Bill Sinken was very adamant about getting representatives from the utility companies, the mayor's office, the county commissioners, and other people in different categories on the board, which was pretty wise so that there was buy-in. And what we were doing was being uh, distributed to um, all those units through the the, uh, board members. It was, from the beginning, supported by the community, by the city. Absolutely. And primarily, when it was starting out, the majority of the support was from the electric utility. Initially, the Home Builders Association were part of this program. How did they relate and how did they include the green building concepts into their development? What we initially tried to do was come up with about three different categories or brackets of green building in San Antonio, making level one very easy for the volume builders to to sign up to and, and get on board. In other words, the requirements that we were asking for were things like 10 to 15% more efficient as far as energy efficiency in their their mechanical equipment, that sort of thing, upgrades in the building envelope. And by envelope, that means roof, walls, windows, and doors. And um, some minor things like that, which made it an easy thing for them to say, okay, 
we can do this and we can become a Build San Antonio Green certified member. And a number of the builders in the Builders Association did sign up. And the intent was to get a large number of them to sign up. And then at some point, because it is a very competitive field, the volume builders of residential housing, the intent was to get them all excited and for somebody to step above the crowd and say, okay, I'm going to start doing level two. And then they all go to level two and then maybe level three. It just didn't get that far. <laughs> and now on to our Zoom call with Anita Ledbetter. I think that last time I saw you, you were working for Solar San Antonio with the founder, Bill Sinken. I met Mr. Sinken and went to Solar San Antonio to work for him. In 2004, he took me under his wing. He started Solar San Antonio. A year or two later, he started the Metropolitan Partnership for Energy because we're sister organizations. I never even changed offices, but I left Solar San Antonio and became the executive director of MPE. We rebranded ourselves DBA Build San Antonio Green because that was the name of the green building program. I became director there in 2006. We lost our mentor, Mr. Stinken, in 2014. And in 2015, we went through a merger with Solar San Antonio, and we've integrated their programming into our programming. Even though we've always worked in solar, we are working at it from the builder and developer side versus our utility scale, working with homeowners. We've been together now for been seven years. In this program, you'll hear references to CPS, which stands for City Public Service. It's the electric utility in San Antonio and SAWS, which stands for San Antonio Water System. Both are publicly owned utilities with responsibility to the citizens of the city of San Antonio and not to outside shareholders. Given the hot, dry climate of San Antonio, both CPS and SAWS have been very active in promoting conservation of water and power through citywide programs. Anita, what is the focus of Build San Antonio Green? We are a nonprofit partnership of the city of San Antonio, Bear County, and CPS Energy. And so those are the three partners. We were founded by them to do this work. We were founded back in 2001 to meet the Texas Emissions Reduction Act. This bill called for municipal entities to reduce emissions through reducing their electrical consumption for our air quality purposes. Mr. Seekin saw this and brought all the partners together to found Build San Antonio Green to reduce emissions. So today, our mission at Build San Antonio Green is to improve the quality of life of the people of San Antonio through our work, which is also to reduce emissions, to save energy, save water, and so on. So our focus has been the green building program, which encapsulates a lot. It's energy, it's water, site, materials, indoor air quality. All of that is to not only save emissions in our community, but also to benefit the people of San Antonio, making that more accessible to people. I think one of my passion areas, when I first started out doing this, the first green home I went to was a multi-million dollar home. And when I came back to San Antonio and we went back to the drawing board, so to speak, the vision is to create something that's accessible for everyone. And that takes a lot of time through scaling things up. So I think that our dream is to bring green building to the people of San Antonio, to everyone, and not just high-income communities. We integrate everything together through building science and performance targets. 
is the intent quantitative, how many buildings you can certify, or qualitative, what the effect of reducing emissions and increasing sustainability. We have a chart that shows this has grown over time. In order to allow that to grow over time, we've had to come together as a community and keep this thing going. Today, we've certified over 30 million square feet in San Antonio. We calculate quantitatively the emissions savings, the energy savings. So that's done through building science. We believe what gets measured tends to improve. That's a very calculated number. It's based on each individual project. We accumulate them. The projects that we have completed, the 30 million square feet of certifications here in San Antonio, reduces emissions by 367 million pounds of CO2, which is like taking over 30,000 cars off the road every year. We have over 8,000 projects under certification right now. Your website said you've certified 13,000 homes. Yes. And that's over how many years? We started getting some more traction since 2009. And now you have 8,000 additional buy-in to the concept? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think there's many factors here. I think one, what has changed is that people ask for it. And we live in San Antonio. Consumers are worried about like, hey, is this air conditioning? Is it good? That energy efficiency and water conservation message is very deep in our community. And so I think that people expect that they want that, they need that, they see the value of that, and they ask for it. And of course, the world has changed a lot around us and people are more aware. There's more demand for solar, there's more demand for EV information or electric field charging station information. It, rainwater harvesting, all of these things have become way more mainstreamed. My personal goal is that I want it to be mainstream so that it's accessible for everyone and not just higher income communities. Let's break that down then in terms of the different elements of the legs of green building. And first of all, on solar, 17 years ago, it was expensive. It was rare. It was not accepted. And how has that changed and why has that changed? Whew, that's such an important question. There's many different sides to this. I think one was, like many things, we began with a lot of advocacy, but there wasn't necessarily building science taken into consideration. When you have $30,000 or $50,000, you can put a big solar system on a very inefficient house. And those things weren't really looked at together in the same way. As we've moved through time, we've realized that the more efficient the house, the more affordable the solar becomes because you don't need as much solar to carry your electrical demand load because you've reduced it through efficiency and conservation. So that really helped turn the industry around and it made it more accessible to people because energy efficiency, reducing that demand helped to correctly size the solar system. Secondly, when I first started out with Mr. Sinkin, 
there was a handful of solar companies in the state. He knew all of them. Today, we have hundreds here in San Antonio. So the industry has grown as well. And then I think that third piece is consumer awareness. In the beginning, you had to write a really big check and have that cash. As we've moved forward, all of these companies, hundreds, there's thousands of them out here in the United States, they have come up with financing and all kinds of strategies to help make it more accessible for people. The more people that buy into it, the more people that have access to it, it reduces the costs for everyone else. And then the other part of that is the investment in solar by our municipally owned utility by CPS Energy. When I started out with Mr. Sinkin, there was nothing. Today, we're fifth in the whole nation, number one in Texas. We have about 700 megawatts of solar and 254 of that megawatts is rooftop here in the city. So I think our story has unfolded because of those combinations of things. One of the things that you mentioned was the lower demand from new construction. What fuels the lower demand of the newly built homes? There's a couple of mechanisms at work and where we as a green building program are designed towards that. And that is the building codes. So the building code generally become better every several years. What our green building program does just in energy is our target is at a minimum. This is the entry level is that it's going to be 15% more efficient than a brand new home just built to code. So we're always above the code and we're helping to prepare our builders for the next code iteration. So we just accelerate that. What are some of the elements that make it 15% above code? Well, here we go. So the second part of that is looking at our process for picking out appliances. That has all, because of consumer demand, has increased the efficiency of a lot of that equipment, the air conditioning systems, the ductwork, the, the building envelope, all of those things have come together through building science and the building software that has come out and energy rating systems. All of that has developed over the course of the evolution of Build San Antonio Green. That new construction keeps getting better and better and better. The problem is that of all the existing homes that are out here, new construction has kind of been an easy thing to, to do because you can build it great in the beginning, but it's all the existing homes. That's our great challenge out here in the community is how we're going to continue to make those homes more efficient because people that are higher income, they buy new refrigerators, they buy energy efficient light. They can take out a loan, make their house more energy efficient, but it's everyone else. How are we going to address everyone else's opportunity to buy into that solar EV? The list goes on, but it's the existing buildings that are our great challenge. And there's a lot of turnover in housing right now with retrofitting and upgrades. Are you able to encourage incentives working with the partners? Absolutely. And yet it's going to require that individual homeowner, their financial ability to do those things. But what we all can do as a community is continue to design incentives. What we try to do is have a platform to make it easy, but somebody's got to write a check to replace those things. And that I think is what Nationwide is trying to solve that problem. We're now going to turn our attention to the availability of water conservation and usage. 
you talked about solar and energy efficiency in terms of consumption. You also mentioned water conservation, and San Antonio has always been at the forefront of water conservation. How do you work to promote that? At Bill San Antonio Green, what we do is we take all of these pieces and put them together in a package. So in water specifically, there's inside water usage and outdoor usage, okay? So inside, we're going to require that all of your faucets are low-flow fixtures, low-flow faucets, low-flow you know, toilets. You're going to have water scents, which is the most energy-efficient, water-conserving type of dishwasher. Those things that use water, your washing machines, so on, we're looking at that. But also outdoors, all the water usage in our community is from watering yards. So what we require is obviously native landscaping, which is much more resilient to the heat and uses less water. We control and do not encourage irrigation systems because if you talk to saws, they'll tell you that the big majority of water is used outdoors by irrigation systems with non-native plants. The other piece of that and something that we do that's very related to water is when these homes are constructed or renovated, we actually get out there and measure the soil to make sure that there's enough so that we're preventing a runoff. So there's like different strategies that we look at. The inside of the house, kind of easy. Equipment keeps getting better. It's that outdoor water usage. And also making sure that we require a certain number of trees on the property. We require root protection during development. We require you to keep a very clean job site, everything organized so that we don't have a lot of waste on the side, which is going to impact the soil, going to impact water runoff in the future. On commercial projects, multifamily, we look at low impact development strategies. There's a lot of different little moving pieces together that maybe someone won't think, what does the soil have to do with water conservation? A lot. The big message that people get is, hey, if you want a nice yard, plant native. It's all of those things, energy, water, the way the sites develop, the materials that are used, the indoor air quality, all of those things mesh together. You hit on the third point, which is the indoor air quality and toxicity. How can you affect that? And what are the elements? Each of our criteria, it bleeds into the other things. They're all meshed together. So for example, the indoor air quality, which is so important because we spend so much time indoors. The indoor air quality of a home or a building is very much affected by the um, maintenance and design of the HVAC system and also by the materials that are used in the home. So we require low or no VOC paints. We're looking at that standard for adhesives, for flooring. Let's clarify for our listeners. HVAC system is heating, ventilation, and air conditioning, and VOC is volatile organic compounds. We're trying to really prevent off-gassing that happens from uh, VOCs inside of the home. We also require certain things like with the garage being attached to the house because you don't want all of that coming into your home. So we're looking at also the building envelope, how tight that building is, because you not only want to not leak air conditioning or heat outside, but you also want to keep that clean air in. And so again, it's the building envelope, it's the tightness of the home, it's the maintenance and design of the HVAC system. It's looking at the materials that are involved in the construction of the home. All of those things come together for that air quality standard. 
that's a lot of requirements. <laughs> do you work with specific builders who are in sync with this? Or do you think that homeowner demand is driving a change? You said 8,000 homes are in the queue. How do you certify? We go to every home and we don't believe in sampling. We believe in testing. So what we do is we develop our criteria. We work with the builder before they build to make sure they model the home so they understand you have to build to this standard. Because by the way, we have no points. You either pass or you fail. That's it. You pass or you fail. There's no in-between. So we try to make sure you're going to build it right to begin with through the plan stage and your specifications up front. We can already tell you, hey, this is, you're going to have to change these things because it won't pass. So that's the step one. Step two is that during construction, my staff is going out there and photographing everything and looking throughout various stages of construction. So we go on-site, in-site to verify that these pieces of equipment are installed or that it's being done correctly. The third piece is that when that home is nearing completion, we go through something that's called the Home Energy Rating System, which is the HERS Index, which is a series of testing on the house, a blower door and a duct blast test. And then we put that together in a computer model, basically, of the home to make sure that that home has been built and will perform at that certain standard. And it is that testing piece that is very, very important. So testing combined with our on-site verification and, and photographing of everything and throughout the whole process, at the end of the day, those two things have to come together for that project to pass. And then we issue a certificate that talks about what that anticipated load will be and the savings from that. And uh, that's how we certify them. And I think that the reason why we're getting bigger is that there's so much demand for housing and so many new homes being built. Here's the thing. If you're in the market to buy a home, you're looking at location, you're looking at what's nearby. Is there like grocery stores or school? So when you have two neighborhoods that are brand new being built, they both have the same price point, same stuff in it, same school, same grocery store, same park. You know what the difference is? One of them will have a big sign out front that says move in here and your bills will be 50% less. Guess what? That, that sells at those houses faster. Yeah, it is that because the consumers are, are out here asking the builder, if I move over here, this guy says these homes operate 50% less than your house. See that demand. Yes, that has really affected our program, but it is those big banners Move here, your bills are 50% less. That moves some the green building program forward. Is the construction cost the same or is there a premium for the green building? That story has changed a lot and it also depends on what level that you're building. So for example, for us in the very beginning, it was super expensive because green meant off-grid, 100% solar, it was a whole different way of thinking about it. Many years ago, we realized that we had to break this thing up into pieces and break it into levels. So the majority of what gets built out here is the basic green building home. Maybe small solar systems that are included on it, or you can roll those things into your mortgage. Those things are done at almost no premium because the higher cost things come into how much solar do you want EV charging station, you want something that is on that next tier, then that's when you get into things that at a higher price point. Our dream is to make 
the basic green building that's better than code, that has all the things to make that at, at very little to almost no premium. Over how many years has that evolved to the point where it is doable now? When I came on board at the beginning of 2006, we had a version of the green building program at that point, but there was three people who had done it and it was all very expensive custom homes. And it was a points-based system with no testing or anything. And so at that time, I guess it probably took a, a year or so to redesign, a year or two to find a builder to do it. Really, we started taking off in 2009, 2008, 2009, right in those years. But we started hitting kind of this more mainstream over the past several years. Another element is the materials used to build the building envelope. And so the question is, are there new materials coming, new building methods? It's a complicated question because we're in San Antonio, Texas. That demand for energy efficiency and water conservation is so strong here that we have a lot of products that have come here and in mass that have helped drive down the cost of it. So for example, windows, they keep just getting better and better and better in our market. The way that you design the uh, HVAC system has radically improved because of the code requirements over the years, um, how tight the building envelope is. It's not all just technology or building materials that have changed. It's the process that has changed around it. And I think that that is probably a bigger impact that was Anita Ledbetter. Build San Antonio Green in Texas works on a citywide scale. The organization we're going to turn to now is a statewide program in Massachusetts, LISC Boston, that utilizes federal, state, and local programs to support their mission. Both organizations aim for equity for all citizens so that everyone has sustainable and resilient housing. Welcome to Living Well into the Future, Emily Jones. You're at LISC Boston. It was formed in 1981. And historically, we're a community development financial institution. So we help support affordable housing, community development writ large, broadly speaking. Historically, here in the LISC Boston office, which is a misnomer, it is statewide. We're Massachusetts-wide. But it's true that we've historically invested specific neighborhoods of Boston that were really underinvested in and focused on building, preserving affordable housing. And now we've expanded to statewide. And then our Green Homes program started now over a decade ago. And it, it came in at the same time as our state's utility, the energy efficiency incentive program was starting for their specifically what they called the low-income arm of it, the Energy Affordability Network. And we wanted to make sure affordable housing owners could take advantage of that program and all of those incentives to maximize energy savings, water savings, and improve healthy housing too, improvements in their properties, in their communities. So that's how we started. LISC, historically, we've worked closely with what are called community development corporations or CDCs. And they are community-based partners that will do the actual building and preservation of affordable housing, economic opportunity, small business support. We don't do the work ourselves. We 
support, hence local initiative support corporation, our name. And so that historically has been folks that we've worked with, but we also work with other community-based organizations, for-profits, non-profits, B-Cores, anybody who's really helping to drive, in our case, green affordable housing and green jobs, these green building job opportunities. And you also have federal government support from various agencies. What are those and how do they fit in? Yes, because we're an intermediary, we pull money from pool money, really, pull and pool these public dollars at the federal, state, local level, private capital, maybe from foundations, individuals, and we bring it all together and then drive it to people, individuals, communities organizations doing work on the ground. So LISC is one of the two or three organizations nationally that receives HUD Section 4 funding, for instance, which is capacity building funding for community development corporations and community housing development organizations to do that. You talk about community building. In in the green buildings program, do you work with multifamily affordable housing owners, landlords, and or do you work with individual homeowners? We really have been focused in on what's called subsidized multifamily affordable housing. That being said, some of our community development partners are working with individual homeowners who may be low, moderate income. A lot of our stock here in Massachusetts is single family home. And we know that folks who may not have disposable income, how do you really help everybody access the decarbonization, this movement? In, in transition in an equitable way. Decarbonization, that's a, a term of art. Basically what it means is if you know about the greenhouse gas emissions and we have all the human related emissions that are leading to this global warming and uh, climate change. And so we know that there are certain strategies that we can decarbonize or decrease the amount of carbon emissions. And obviously That's transitioning off of fossil fuels. Stop burning things is the idea. And so when we say building decarbonization, we're looking at that suite of solutions. It might be transitioning from gas to all electric, heating and cooling systems and domestic hot water. It definitely also includes increasing the energy efficiency of the building, making it a tighter envelope so that you're using less energy overall. And then thinking about how do we maybe produce energy on site? So if there's a ability for solar photovoltaic or solar electric system to, to be on site, that's another way that you can reduce your dependency on fossil fuel powered energy. The one last thing that people are starting to look at more, really interesting, is what's called embodied carbon. This is this idea that All of the materials we use to build and rehab houses, cement, wood, right? They all have different levels of energy that was put into them to create them. So we're trying to help people think, okay, maybe there are certain materials uh, like hempcrete instead of the traditional concrete and cross-laminate timber. The certain types of building materials you can transition toward to decrease the total amount of carbon that went into production of those materials and hence 
the total amount of carbon that you're building took to create and preserve it. So that is the sustainability part of it. I guess mitigation. What about the resiliency part of it? Yeah, yeah, that's a really good point. At the same time that we want to be working on this decarbonization, we also want to be ready for the current climate, for the future climate. And some of the the best strategies are actually uh, do both at the same time. We know that Passive House, that's a very high performance building standard, utilizes very low amounts of energy and that is, it's a way that when, the, if and when the power does go out, because the building's so well insulated, you can stay warm in the winter or cool in the summer for a longer time. And so that's a way that as we're developing more passive house new construction and retrofitting to the, this higher standard, closer meeting passive house, you can start to help people shelter in place in a safe way. I think we know that extreme heat is it's it's killing a lot of people and where we need to figure out strategies to really reduce extreme heat impacts on people. So other ways that we're looking at it is we support resiliency assessments. So looking at the building, figuring out what are some strategies? Can you put a white roof on and reflect some of the sun off? Can you have awnings? Can you have some additional cooling devices? refrigeration. If the power does go out, do you have backup generator? How do you figure it all out? Battery storage is another way that you might be able to have longer term um, energy use if if the, the grid goes down. And then we help support owners in doing what's called emergency preparedness plans. So this is thinking through, okay, Let's figure out maybe there's a, a massive heat wave coming. Maybe there's a hurricane, flood warning, whatever it is. How do we make sure residents and the management companies and the owners know, okay, here's what we do if X happens. Here's what we do if Y happens. Here's the food. Here's the shelter. Here's maybe our electricity usage and really helping people prepare so that the physical environment is ready and the people are are feeling ready as well. This is such important stuff, but it sounds very expensive. Yeah. How is that going to happen? (laughs) We're blessed in Massachusetts to be the number one energy efficiency program state for several years now in a row. So we definitely have amazing incentives here that owners can take advantage of. That's the number one thing is uh, making sure you're getting access to those resources in the Mass Save and the Lean program, which is the low income arm of it. I think beyond that, The state has made commitments to solar. There are grants available through through the Department of Environmental Protection that are coming out. We're excited about for solar. The Mass Clean Energy Center, our clean energy agency, has made a commitment to both green homes as energy efficiency or clean energy upgrades, and then the workforce development angle and training opportunities for, for folks who want to enter or advance in the green building industry. And then I think beyond that, we know that we can drive uh, private, we can drive public funding to this arena, but it involves a lot of advocacy and helping people understand the, the need for it. We're right now in the process of advocating for what we're calling a zero carbon renovation fund. So really helping affordable housing owners and other priority communities, environmental justice communities, nonprofits, small businesses, schools in those communities 
to access resources that would allow them to, to drive these deep energy retrofits or, or building decarbonization projects. That would have to be funded by something. And one of the ideas is to look for American Rescue Plan Act funding or ARPA. And we've already allocated just under, I think, $3 billion of the $5 billion or so that Massachusetts has. So there's another pot of $2 billion that's left to be allocated. We'd love if the legislature provided at least $250 million to this zero carbon renovation fund to really spur the industry. And we've seen some progress with the newest climate bill and some amendments that have been offered for that. It didn't pass. Well, what we have to see is what is going to pass and can we move forward with ARPA this session or do we have to wait until the next session and maybe the new governor? So when she is elected, we will we'll find out more maybe. What is the advantage of green retrofit to the affordable housing owners? That's a really good question. We see green retrofits as two or threefold, really. Definitely the focus initially was energy savings, water savings, and those have bottom lines in terms of money. That anything that you can save, if you're increasing the energy efficiency of your building, first off, the benefit of green retrofits is that you're going to save money. And, and so that's key for an owner who is already trying to do a lot with very limited subsidy and it saves money for the property. I'd say the second benefit of doing retrofits is health. We've seen a lot of health improvements through a transitioning and green retrofit has historically, we've supported transitions to smoke-free housing, to green cleaning practices and policies, and to integrated pest management. This is just thinking about how you, um, how you support healthier indoor air quality environments. And so that's been something that increased comfort, health for residents, and then obviously the environment, right? Thinking about how we're decreasing carbon emissions, we're helping to live to our clean energy, our, these new goals that we have, really important to be able to hit those. And I said the fourth benefit of green retrofits that we have to bake in that is key is the workforce development piece. It's multifaceted. And then going back to your point about how do you pay for it, this money question, it's good for us to talk about as we move from gas-powered systems in buildings to electricity, electric-powered systems, our what's called the spark rate, it is still more expensive to heat or cool with electricity because it's just that cost differential. I think that is where we can, with something like the Zero Carbon Renovation Fund, other protections for residents and owners as we're transitioning toward a, a fully decarbonized, this new green economy where we stop burning things for the, for the environment, better for the planet, better for people, that we're going to have to figure out how to fund that transition. And that's where we have to think about additional resident protections on rent control, utilities, tenants to stay, and owners' ability to, to pay for these transitions. So again, it all comes back to the political will. How do we pay for it? How do we do this transition in an equitable way? And who has access to all of who benefits from this transition? I've spoken with developers and participated in discussions of affordable housing, and affordable housing 
does not work without subsidies, without grants, without outside support. And you're adding this onto it, which makes it even more challenging for the owners and developers. Exactly. And that's where affordable housing, frankly, has been leaders in the passive house and these other high performance decarbonized building standards. And we can't expect them to do that on no money. We can't have unfunded mandates. And on the other end, once they've built it, we need to make sure that operation-wise, that it's still sustainable in terms of the electricity rates. So yes, agreed. We want affordable housing and we want green housing. We want both. And so how do we invest in that? How do we make that transition? How do we actually go into that transition in a way that we're not leaving anyone behind. Not an easy job you have there. No, but I am, I'm very thankful that we have many partners that um, are doing this work, really leading in the field. And LISC is, we're just, again, our name is Local Initiative Support Corporation. And that's what we're here to do is support all of those community leaders, all those community-based organizations that are doing the work to try to help scale it help advance it and make it standard practice. Can you point to a particular success story in an affordable housing multifamily project? I'd say the solar program is something that we've been really excited of. It was inspired by other owners who took leadership. The three different local community development corporations in the Boston area, Madison Park Development Corporation, Somerville Community Corporation and South Boston Neighborhood Development Corporation, all of them started to work on solar. They were working with a solar provider, B Corps, called Resonant Energy. And we saw that was a great model to allow them to review their whole portfolio for solar and then get creative, the different financing solutions that worked for affordable housing owners. So that's what drove us to develop this uh, solar program that now is 30 affordable housing owners strong. It's already 1.6 megawatts of solar that they've committed to and looking to drive four megawatts through that whole program. And that's just in the past year and a half. So that's one example. That is the sort of thing that we want to scale. So we know that works, but then how do we build on that, replicate it? maybe make it a state program. Oftentimes, LISC will look at something, we'll see if it works, if especially a local partner has done it, and then we'll try to support the scaling and replication of it. Ultimately, what we want to do is make it something that's baked into our governance, our policies at the state level, so that it just becomes the baseline. And I think that's definitely something that we've been proud to be part of that that passive house as that transition of now new construction for multifamily affordable housing. Passive house is kind of what people are thinking about as a de facto standard. Is it incorporated into the building codes of the various communities? Not yet, but Julie, I think that's the next step is how do you help bake it in like that and make it stand? That's exactly the sort of thing that LISC likes to support is how do you go from this one-off frontline leader to making something that's a really good practice standard. That was Emily Jones. 
Now let's get back to Anita Ledbet. When will the level of adoption of green building reach uh, sufficient numbers to diminish climate change? What more do we need to do? I think there's two sides of it. Side one is what we've been doing, which is mitigating, mitigating our contribution to climate change through reducing emissions. Obviously, we have to increase that. So not only through new construction, we're a small percentage of what exists. We have to get to the existing buildings. The second piece of that, and this is something that I personally am very passionate about, I was co-chair of our SA Climate Ready Plan. And back in 2019, I created a new program for Build San Antonio Green called Climate Ready. And what that is, is the second piece of the answer, which is we have preparedness and resiliency. If every single building in San Antonio is green built and and we've reduced emissions, that is not going to solve the problem because guess what? Climate change is happening and it's going to hit, we're going to have extreme weather as we've seen. So we're trying to take this to the next level and say mitigation, that is not enough because we're trying to prepare people and buildings for extreme weather. So in the climate ready program, it's still a, a green built home and you're still reducing emissions, but that's not enough. So we're trying to design a building where if you lose power or water, or if you have some extreme weather event, we don't want the side of the house melting off because it's so hot that ha- it's been happening in other places. So we're starting to redo our criteria where we look at heat preparedness, extreme heat preparedness, and we're thinking about things in a different way. And I think that's super important because a lot of times when we talk about climate change, people forget that people live here and it's coming and we have to get ready for it. Not just prevent it, not just stop what we're doing, but we also have to prepare people to live through it. I look at it both those two ways. It's emissions reduction, so mitigating our contribution to climate change and preparedness, and that is getting ready for what's already on our doorstep. That's shocking to think about, but so necessary. Thank you. Well, thank you. In our SA Climate Ready Plan, we did look at that. And and we also, there's a third piece here that's important, which is equity. When I look at however you want to call it, climate change and an extreme weather event, when something really massive happens, pandemic, whatever it is, the people are disproportionately affected by that based on where you live, based on your socioeconomic status, all of that. So what we want to try to do is help to re-engineer a more equitable community. You shouldn't have to live in a floodplain or your community get flooded if it floods or your community lose power if there's an outage because you have old infrastructure. There's a lot of those pieces. It's not enough to just reduce emissions. We have to be prepared because this extreme weather is coming at us. And so I think a lot of my passion area has, you know, it's weird because when we talk about back in the early days, climate change was such an important part of our conversation, but it was in the future. It's going to happen in the future, trying to prevent it. That's why emissions reduction is so important. And then one day I woke up and we were just smack dab in the middle of climate change. It's already here. It's already happening. And things like your roof melting off or the side of your house melting or out in the driveway flooding, the probability of such a thing grows over time. So these are the things we are trying to think about when we think of climate resiliency moving forward, is that we have to prepare these buildings for extreme weather so that we can improve the lives of people. In terms of the preparing for the extreme conditions, how do you prevent the roof from melting? There's a lot of pieces to things. Everything is interconnected. So there's the level of how the building is built or how the building is retrofitted. That's one piece. Another piece is utilities, CPS, SAWS are doing 
also because of extreme weather. You have the city of San Antonio has now developed a lot of preparedness materials to prepare people in, in case of extreme weather. So there's a whole chain of things that are developing and starting to come together to help our community move forward. And what we're doing or our little vision is just one little sliver of a bigger thing that will take the whole community to come together around to really get San Antonio climate ready. This sounds very forward thinking and proactive. Is this happening all over the country? There are many cities across the nation that adopted their own climate plans. What we did is we look at what our anticipated climate will be here in San Antonio, and then we designed our program to address those issues. And I think that should happen specific to every community because every community is going to have different issues. So climate preparedness for buildings or communities should be very specific to that community and to the people that live there. What would you like to see in the future to try and enhance what you're doing now? What more do you need? I would say that it really begins with thinking about how everything is connected. Because what we want again, the dream is for everyone to have access to these things. So for example, we are now in the dawn of electric vehicle conversion. Okay. And, and it's more pressing right here, right now than solar was 20 years ago. And what I think the dream is and what we, you know, all need to work on is how are we going to not leave anybody behind in that conversion? You think about it over the next 10 years, as we convert to electric vehicles, not everybody can afford an electric vehicle. Then we have low income people paying the highest price in existing cars, maybe getting penalized for air quality. That's what's coming if we don't solve those issues in the beginning, and, and the answer is not just to put a charging station in a low-income community, because you have to put the cars there. And that, and, and working on how we're going to get all the existing buildings retrofit to be not only clean and energy efficient and water conservation, but how we're going to make them more resilient to the climate. And those are the big questions. And I think that really involves a national and international conversation because we have to bring all the tools to the table and think about things very holistically. And that's what keeps me up at night. That's what I think those are the big things that are coming. And I want to prevent to the degree that we can leaving most people behind. And that's the thing we're, we're working towards, accessibility and equity. Thank you. Indeed, isn't better? Thank you so much. And thanks to Emily Jones and Stephen Colley. In future episodes in this series, we'll look at affordable housing, homelessness, and alternative housing solutions. All should provide fodder for discussion within and among the generations. Please let us know whether this program enhances your appreciation of generations other than yours. Tell us what you think about the issues we discuss. You can find more information about them on the Berkshire Ali website, berkshireali.org. You'll find this and future episodes of Living Well into the Future on wtbrfm.com, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. You can even ask your smart device to play the Living Well into the Future podcast. You can reach us at lwitf22 at gmail.com. That's L-W-I-T-F 22 
at gmail.com. Our thanks from me, Julie Beather, to Berkshire Ollie and its Changing Aging Special Interest Group, and WTBR-FM 87.9 Pittsfield for their support, and to our team members, Fran Weinberg, Alan Kofstein, Dale Borman-Fink, Lucy Kennedy, and our intern, Ashley Delraditz. Our music is by Michael Koppenheffer. Our graphics are by Gene Rosso. The opinions expressed on this program are those of the guests and not of WTBR Berkshire Ali or the LWITF production team.